When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Newsflash. Osteoarthritis has just been cured. Read the fine print. It's in an animal model of osteoarthritis. It's not necessarily in human disease, but it'll still make the headlines automatically see this as a huge success that will likely make an impact for your disease in the immediate future. Unfortunately, many of those successes that preclinical researchers have had have not necessarily translated into the human disease. More often than not, that can be predicted based upon the preclinical science. So that's research that typically has occurred in animals with osteoarthritis. There's a lot we can learn from those translational failures and the inability to move from animal models of disease into the human condition. And unfortunately, many times we haven't learned those lessons. Today's conversation is about that topic. It's quite pithy, it's really important. And I think from the viewpoint of bringing those really important insights from discovery into human disease and making a difference to the management of this condition long-term, it's really important we have these conversations. Really pleased to be joined by a returning guest, Professor Chris Little from the University of Sydney, to talk about this important topic. Hello, Chris. Welcome back to Joint Action. Delighted to be back, David. It's a pleasure as always. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the time you're taking to chat to us um, and the insights that we will undoubtedly receive from your glowing knowledge base about this really important topic. But before we get into the topic at hand, just wondering if you could share with the listeners potentially again a little bit more about what you do and what a typical day looks like a typical day for me so, so these days a typical day is is buried in sadly is buried in a lot of bureaucracy but the joyful parts of my day relate to the reason that I do what I do which is when someone in my team comes to me and they've got some new data or some new information an experiment they've done and 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 in this the part of of research that i'm in which is discovery research and basic science we call it is 
often these are things, and it's what I tell students if they're interested in going into research, it may not pay that well and it may not have a great career path for you. But every day you get the chance to see something that maybe no one has ever seen before. And that's such fun to get data and to interpret it. So so my day is a mixture of being a senior person at a university and dealing with the bureaucracy and things in that space, but also having the joy of working with early and mid-career researchers who are at the bench getting data. Yeah, and presumably you foster those moments where it's the little the little nuggets, the little kernels of new knowledge, and that's what probably keeps you coming back, right? Oh, yeah. And everyone you get, every one of those little things you get doesn't mean, oh, well, we've solved that, so let's move on. It always then raises, oh, that makes me think about this, and maybe we should head down that path. And so it's the continual quest for understanding and knowledge that is the fun bit. And it's why it's so important to each other in the car <laughs> as well. But anyway, that's beside the point. I love going out to restaurants and eating, and I should do less of that because that's having bad effects on me as I get older. I play golf, and one of the things I do is I enjoy movies, and I'm currently attending the Sydney Film Festival, which I do every year. So over the next 10 days, I'll see 30 or 35 movies from around the world, and it's a nice escape. It's, it's a virtual way to travel, which I also like to do. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, enjoy, and I hope Kerry does the same. Now, Chris, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? I think I'm curious, insatiably curious. That probably comes back from the conversation we were having earlier. I'm passionate about things. Whatever I get involved in, I get passionate about, maybe to a fault. So I get angry if they go wrong. And But I, uh, I'm loyal, I think. I, in a good way, I think I'm irreverent. So I like to see the funny and, and controversial side of things. And what else? Unfortunately, these days, I won't dwell on it. I, I, probably other words come to mind like tired and frustrated. And, and some of that's about funding and research success and things like that. But I try not to let that be a major part of life. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Let's focus on the insatiably curious. On the and... good bits. Yes. <laughs> but no. I think it's 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 reality in the circumstance with within which we live at the moment that there's always going yeah. to be challenges. But you know, mm -hmm. I think I probably tell you on a regular basis. Let's not let's not focus on those. Let's focus on the positives. Yeah, exactly. the golden nuggets or whatever it, whatever <laughs> it is you're discovering today, uh, which I guess brings us to the topic at hand. As I said in the introduction, Chris and colleagues and many other people around the world have been fantastically famous at curing osteoarthritis on a regular basis. And he, you know, he was quite happy sharing that with me on a regular basis. And, and my continued failures to do the same for the human model, which I think is probably vastly more important. But anyway, can you just tell me a little bit more about the successes that you've had in curing osteoarthritis? Yeah, and I and I I know you're being somewhat facetious with me, but I just so on a, on a serious part of that, I, have I ever cured osteoarthritis? And I think that implies potentially reversing existing well-established disease. And, and I don't think I or pretty much anyone else in the world has ever done that. I'm not sure we have cured existing disease. What we have done, my team and many others around the world, is that we've had success in slowing the onset and progression of structural disease uh, and in managing the pain of that disease. So we've certainly had that success preclinically and, and we could say that's 
a cure in in some respects. And and when you use the word slowing, is there any is there any reversal? So any move in the direction of cure? I think in in all honesty, I would say I think there's limited evidence for that at this stage. So no repair, no repair that you could say is better than when they when you first started treating. So so again, I, I, there are a couple of things that get conflated sometimes, which are that we've got a study ongoing at the moment, which is in repairing a defect. So so in repairing a, a, an osteochondral, a bone and cartilage injury, which is another common thing that, that you have to deal with as a clinician, in, particularly in young athletes and sports people. And in, and in doing those, yes, there's been some fantastic stuff in terms of getting better repair of that. In an osteoarthritic joint where you have widespread joint-wide pathology and structural erosion and pathology of cartilage and change in the bone and inflammation, have we reversed that? Have we regrown happy, healthy cartilage and got back to normal bone from that state? I'm, I'm skeptical to say that we've really moved that needle a lot. There are probably little bits and pieces, David, you know, where things have been initiated later in, a, in an animal model disease where there's, it might be some suggestion of improvements. And if you disagree with that, if I, because you know, you you get to see all of these papers coming across your desk as an editor as well. So, no, no. but I I don't think we have. No, no. Uh, and and I, I think the important distinction there that Chris is making is that, you know, the the small defects that may be present, whether that be in an animal model or or human disease, there has been some success yeah. both in animal and humans with the repair of small defects whether that be through biologic agents, pharmacologic agents, or engineered constructs. But by and large, uh, and this is probably by the sound of things, both for animal and human, we've seen slowing of disease, but not necessarily reversal to the point where we would say that the joint is back to its and, native state. And, and I guess the one that, that maybe has been done in both both of our spheres in the preclinical and the clinical might be in the distraction and offloading studies that have been done. So mechanically un unloading a joint for a long period of time and seeing some regrowth of tissues. Are we getting completely normal tissues back? I'm again, a bit skeptical about it, but yeah, no, I mean, I think most people would say that the uh, reparative process that goes on is more of a fiber cartilage. So actually having more type one than type two collagen rather than the yeah. native hyaline articular cartilage. But, but I think, uh, sorry, I, I, I do think the idea of slowing or halting progression is still relevant to us. I don't want people listening to the podcast to say we're giving up on those that have established osteoarthritis because part of what you see is those people progressing and getting worse. And I, if we could stop that process would be a great achievement. But it's fair to say that you've had success in osteoarthritis in slowing or stopping and improve and concomitantly improving uh, symptoms. Not always. Sometimes we improve symptoms and not structure, structural change. And sometimes, sometimes we, probably more often than not, we've improved structural change without changing symptoms. And sometimes we've had things where we've had great effects on symptoms and wor much worse disease from the pathology point of view. So. But yes, we've had success. Yeah. So is it fair to say, actually, but let's back up a second. We're talking about the discord between what you found in preclinical animal models and what we see in the human model. What, what are we actually talking about when we're talking about 
preclinical animal models by and large in osteoarthritis. Yeah, and so and it's a really important distinction, and I'm sure we'll have a fair bit of discussion about it shortly. But but it is that in the vast majority of cases, what what we do for finding this is about discovery for trying to work out the mechanisms of action and seeing if we can find ways to slow or stop disease is is we induce disease in an animal model. So we create most commonly an injury as people would have a cruciate ligament injury or a meniscal tear or and so we see disease go from a normal joint and then it progresses with time. And and so one of the advantages of that that we have over different types of osteoarthritis in people that we could talk about is we know exactly when it starts and we can initiate a treatment or a therapy early in that disease course to stop it from initiating and progressing. And, and I think that's one of the discords that we see between preclinical research and, and the human disease. Yeah. So let's, let's come back to that in a second. But so what yeah. we're talking about is using those models, which are largely injury-based models that you've demonstrated success with treatment of those animal models that demonstrate osteoarthritis, both in terms of slowing or stopping structural change, as well as symptoms. Is it fair to say yep. that those successes that you've had in those animal models, at least at this point in time, haven't translated into the human space? Yes. I, I think it's fair to say that, but as always, I would like to add some caveats to it. <laughs> so I do think that's fair to say. Otherwise, you and I would be having this conversation now about 350 different treatments for osteoarthritis, because that's about the number of specific gene molecules that have been looked at in mouse models in particular, but in a lot of other species as well, where we see a significant effect on disease. So every one of those should be a treatment, you would argue, but but they haven't translated. And, and I guess one of the caveats about that is to say that in studies of translational failure, which is a big part of, of what we're talking about, and, and one of the, the things that drug companies and others look at in their pipeline, not just in osteoarthritis, is most of those failures happen very early on in saying, does this work in in an animal model, let's develop a drug or something and move that into people. Most of them fail in that first safety study in people. Nearly 80% fail at that stage. So it's not necessarily that they weren't going to work. It's that the compound that's made, that the other side effects fail. And so arguably, I would argue this, you might argue the opposite. That's a translational success. We've avoided a therapeutic uh, later risk for patients. And I would also have the caveat that some of those things that have progressed also worked well in preclinical models. So they were successful in both. And I, the challenge for me is, so if some things are predictive and work, why don't, why don't all of them? And I don't, uh, that's one of the challenges that I don't know and we should discuss. And so, you know, FGF18 worked really well in animal models. And that's one of the things that probably spurifamin in people and, an anti-nerve growth factor has some issues in the clinical trials in people, but worked spectacularly well in animal models for pain. Um, and one of the issues with that has been that at the doses in people that it works spectacularly well for OA pain, it has some side effects. So, so again, it often comes down to safety failure. But Was that just, we're getting sidetracked here for a second, but was that NGF 
the nerve growth factor inhibition safety failure was that predictable based upon the preclinical models and here we're here we're talking about an adverse effect which is somewhat unpredictable in humans where people some people developed oftentimes off target target joint so it was not it was it was not seen in the preclinical models i have to say but but part of part of it would also be that you know nerve growth factor that's the thing we're talking about where we develop an antibody and stop it and and it, it sounds of course that's going to be involved in pain it was first discovered as a molecule that affects bone cell growth it was discovered by an australian scientist down in victoria so so when you block that in combination with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory type drugs that also affect bone cells would I be surprised that at high doses you might see that in that combination? No. So I think scientifically we predicted it, but it was not seen for the animal models. Okay, no, that's very good. Um, and I guess just really to reinforce the important concept that Chris was talking about there a moment ago, early failures, at least from a commercial perspective, are a success because the, the cost of particularly developing uh, late-stage pharmacologic agents can run into the billions. And if you can stop that in phase one, at least commercially, that's probably a success. And phase the phase one studies usually largely are about testing what we call safety or toxicology. And so I think if you can stop them there, that's that's probably likely better for all humankind. Now, um, going beyond that, so obviously there's been a number of other products that have gone on into phase two and phase three. And uh, been unable, unfortunately, to replicate the successes that yep. you've had preclinically. Why? I think it is that uh, my biggest belief is it is that it's about the heterogeneity that 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 osteoarthritis in people is not one disease, and we touched on it from our models uh, are often in joint injury models, and those exist in people. Obviously, there are lots of people that have joint injuries and get osteoarthritis just like our animal models do. That's not what the majority of clinical trials are done in. And so I think it's the discord between the type of osteoarthritis, we call it a phenotype, or the, the different subtype of osteoarthritis that we study in preclinical research most commonly is not the one that is suddenly that then gets tested for clinical trials. So we do it, tend to do it in young male mice with a joint injury. Those would largely be exclusion criteria for a lot of the clinical trials. You would do it in older people with established OA, more than 50% of which would be female and would have comorbidities such as they'd be postmenopausal, they would have maybe some higher body weight issues. And none of those do we end up testing for and controlling for in our studies. And, and it's part of that's a commercial problem. Part of it is, is time. And so I think it's those differences. That's my belief, is that sex differences, age differences, disease stage differences, and again, potentially that discord between a lot of the preclinical work is looking at structural disease modification, the change in the cartilage in the bone, and the, the primary outcome still for the majority, not all, obviously, of human clinical trials would be clinical symptoms. And there's a discord in animal models just as there is in people so again in a perverse way we actually know all of that from our preclinical model data these days we actually know that a particular treatment or a particular gene if we take it out 
might actually work in one sex and not another, it might work in one disease model and not another, will change in its efficacy with older animals or if we have obesity. So we could actually predict exactly that there should be a failure of that translation. So perversely, we know that that's one of the problems. And, and I think that's, I can bang on about it, but I think it's that. And the other one is, the other strange thing is when we think about pain, so it's not just structural disease modification that's failed, it's also been pain treatments that have failed. And why is that? And I, and I think there again are some differences in the humans and the psychosocial aspects of pain that we potentially don't get to explore in preclinical studies. And this strange, useful and difficult thing at the same time in people of the placebo effect. And so when we're testing an animal model and testing for pain outcomes, we might see a very significant effect. It might be a 50% reduction in pain or 50% of the animals have, have a significant reduction in pain. That can often be the placebo effect in people. And so if, if our preclinical study is only giving us a 50% pain outcome, which is highly significant, that's very likely to fail in a clinical trial because it won't get over the top of placebo. And so there are pros and cons to that, obviously, but I think there are a number of those factors that give us failure. Oh, sorry, I'll, I'll stop. You ask me a question. Otherwise, I'll bang no, on. No, I want to dig into that particular component a little bit further because obviously the, the way we assess pain um, in most human clinical trials in osteoarthritis is just about self-report. So, you know, how, how bad is your pain over a certain time frame and potentially related to certain activities? And and as you mentioned, it, it's a construct that's potentially very complex in terms of the psychosocial characteristics of the people who are responding to that, as well as potentially the biology and, and the placebo effect. How do you measure pain and how does that relate to the way we do it? Yeah, good question. So we obviously can't ask our animals how they're feeling. So there are a number of different measures that you can use, and they're not always affected equally by any given therapy, which tells you, again, the complexity of pain. So some of it is about sensitization, which is that thing where something that shouldn't hurt. The classic example is you have sunburnt skin, you go to a shower, the water hits your skin and it hurts sunburnt skin. That's, that's a particular thing called allodynia. So we test that and that happens in people as it does in our animal models so that that one is may not be directly related to a pain phenomenon that someone is walking upstairs and feeling pain but then we do other things in terms of of weight bearing on the animal's legs and their gait analysis so we do all of those things that should in theory be more predictive of human pain and and I guess there's also some of the things where we talk about that sensitization of the nervous system. So things that become painful that shouldn't be. That does occur in people. In a, but again, it's not all people with osteoarthritis. So perhaps that outcome, when we look at it, would only be relevant to a subset of people that have that neuropathic osteoarthritic pain. And, and again, we probably don't subdivide those when we start thinking about a clinical trial and so again, I, I really think it comes to really aligning outcomes in preclinical research with a particular patient cohort. And, and it may only be for a given drug or a given treatment or a given, these could be physical therapies as well. It might only be that that's going to work for 10 or 15% of the population with osteoarthritis. But that would be a failure of a clinical trial because we don't subdivide the people going in. And I think that's probably where we need to have a much better conversation and alignment between 
clinical research, drug development research, and basic science research. And I think we're all culpable. I think we, I think as a basic scientist, I do research and I publish a paper and that's my KPI, if you like, my performance indicator for the university. Yeah, Chris published a paper, good on him. But that means nothing to the translation of it. And then a drug company will have a certain development and we work with a lot of them. They'll develop a drug and we'll test it in one of our models and say, that looks really promising. That worked really well. And I say to them, inevitably, next step should be, we should test it in other models. We should test it in older mice. We should test it in males and females. We should test it in those that have obesity. And, and they go, yeah, we've actually got to get some investment. Otherwise, the company is going to fail. So we, this looks promising. I think we'll move forward into some safety trials. And, and then as as I won't let you off the hook entirely, then as a clinical trialist, if all of your preclinical data was in an injury model, if that's all that was out there, you would still very likely, and not your fault entirely because you'd be working with a drug company, you would very likely do your clinical trial in people with established OA. So we all know this is a problem and none of us are fixing it. No, 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 no. no. So it's all good and it's all really helpful information. Just back to the measurement of pain just for a second. The allodynia, the, the sensitivity that you talked about before. Yes. What if, um, and I'll talk about the functional assessments in a minute, where you're talking about bearing weight on a limb yeah. and the time spent in different aspects of gait. There's a strong push in some segments of the osteoarthritis clinical community to look at these measures of quantitative sensory testing and to look at measures of what we call functional performance, so you know, measuring the time it takes to yeah. walk a certain distance or to get up and down from a chair, for example. Would you advocate that that's a good move and that we should be moving away from asking people about their pain from self-report if we do want to have success in translation? Yes and no. I mean, I, I think it would allow us to understand more about that translational question. So so is allodynia in an animal model related to the same allodynia in people? But it would be irrelevant if we cured someone, cured, I'll use that word again, cured their allodynia, and they said to you, no, I'm still feeling terrible. Because pain is a really complex thing that might involve some allodynia, but it's also all of those psychosocial things we talked about, and it's, it's inability to perform certain functions which may not be related to allodynia. So I think it would be a terrible mistake to move away from a patient-reported outcome of... Let's shift the parameter a little bit. Can we reach a common ground whereby you've demonstrated in your animal model that this particular product that you're testing is helpful yeah. in animals that have some degree of sensitivity, that yeah. you've tested this product and it demonstrates that sensitivity is reduced and as a consequence, potentially the behavioral functional aspects of the gait similarly also improve. Would... Would you advocate that either A, at the beginning when we're screening people, that we have much better identification and stratification of people and or that we should actually be measuring some of those characteristics in the clinical trial so we better understand the population and the response that they may get? Because at the moment, you know, particularly when, when I think about measuring function using observed measures of, of gait, using timed walk, a chair stand time, um, and particularly doing quantitative sensory testing, I've never really seen that happen in our clinical trials. By all means, I understand the concept that we still want to ask people about whether it hurts and how it hurts and what it stops them from doing. But should we be doing 
some of this more exploratory stuff to facilitate a better understanding of the translation? I, I my short answer would be absolutely yes. I think I think it would be great because it would be it would help in knowing what percentage of your population had those different aspects of pain and whether that was related to their outcome. And it would be what a fantastic thing if you could find one or more of those quantitative sensitivity tests or sit to stand or distance and say, wow, that actually was really predictive of you being um, responsive to this therapy. And suddenly you could end up with a therapy for whatever percentage of the population had that, that was going to be 70, 80, 90% successful. And, and that would just be outstanding. And if you don't ever measure it, then you'll never know that. And it might, it, that's my fantasy. My, my hope is that you'll subdivide and find responsive subpopulations. Maybe you won't, but, but hopefully you will. Yeah. And I, you know, I think what we're really talking about here is targeting that concept that Chris was talking about before, where we've got incredible heterogeneity with this disease and lots and lots of different potential subgroups or phenotypes that may respond very differently to different agents. Now, I guess just giving people some hope in this space, I, I would like to believe that there are some promising results that have come from trials that are already out there. And you mentioned one of them. So that's the Spree-Ferman product that targets fibroblast growth factor 18. There have been some other recent studies that have demonstrated benefits from biologic agents such as Canakinumab in the Cantos trial, uh, colchicine in a recent, again, cardiovascular trial, demonstrating improvements in a sort of a composite outcome of joint replacement, which may reflect both structure and, and pain. Before we got on, you suggested that that was all entirely predictable based upon the preclinical <laughs> models. Uh, is, that, is that a fair summation? Yeah. I, so those particular therapies all were effective in preclinical models as well. And they were effective in the subgroups that are in which those clinical trials were effective. So the, the canakinumab, the, the anti-interleukin-1, that particular inflammatory cytokine, failed in its early studies in osteoarthritis. Failed and people said, well, gee, that's another failure because that worked in some animal models. But subsequently in the Cantos trial you talked about, it, it was in a population of patients where they were looking for cardiovascular disease and they had systemic inflammation. Suddenly there was this reduction in serendipitous. It hasn't been retested to the best of my knowledge. I don't know if you know if they're doing one as a, as a primary aim. I assume someone is. There's a similar trial that yeah. Novartis is heading up. Yeah. So, and so suddenly that subpopulation of people that had inflammation there was a recent study, a, a lovely recent study. And so I'm saying it was predictive. It, this is a back translational prediction, which is that in looking at different genetically modified mice that have different amounts of hypercholesterol metabolic disease, uh, and then they treated them with them with, with interleukin-1 inhibitor, the, the canakinumab, and looked at whether combination with statins to reduce the cholesterol. Well, it turns out that in those mice that had the particular strain of mice that had systemic inflammation, not just the ones that had local inflammation, and when you maximally controlled their cholesterol, super responsive to our anti-interleukin-1 in structural disease modification. Well, all the people in the Cantos trial were on statins and had very well controlled cholesterol. 
So maybe it tells you exactly what you would, I think it arguably it tells you exactly the subpopulation and the things you need to do. You need people that have systemic inflammation. If they don't, it probably won't work. And you've got to really well control their cholesterol. If you just control cholesterol alone, it doesn't work when you combine it with IL-1. So, so even that nuanced subgroup of people ultimately was is now predictive from the preclinical model. So I I really think it's it's that that level of of subdivision of people. So and the culture scene one, there was a study done again in an injury model in mice, again published in the osteoarthritis and cartilage, a, a very high quality journal that showed that it was protective structural disease. In neither of those studies I'm talking about preclinically was any pain outcome done. Arguably a failure in those studies, but you know they weren't. They were all looked at structure. So both of those would predict structural improvement. But then the opposite side of that equation is, well, what about all the other ones that work then? Why haven't they worked in people? And I am again suspicious that it's it's about the type of disease. But yeah, so that brings us brings us to the next topic, yeah. and we've I guess already started touching upon this, but. What's the remedy here? How do we fix the inability to get things from the preclinical space and translate that successfully into the human model? And I guess we've touched upon some suggestions, but do you want to expand on that at all? I think a lot of things in life we end up having to get forced into. So uh, human beings, maybe not yourself, I'll put myself in this category, are often tend to take the easiest path to somewhere. And so unless, unless we get forced into doing things, we won't. So as an example, I said that the majority of preclinical research is done in male animals, has been for decades across the health spectrum. That's done an absolute disservice to females. And as part of that remedy, and it really needs a remedy, is funding organizations, for example, the NIH, they will not fund your study unless you test it in both sexes in a preclinical study. We're not in that situation yet in Australia and many other places. So you have to get forced into it. And there's a cost that goes with that because you're now doubling the amount of research, doubling the amount of time. And so the number of studies that can get funded goes down. So there's pros and cons. So we need to get forced into doing some of this stuff. So I think arguably you could say that for the FDA or someone might force and insist to a company that's great. You did it in that one model. We want to see it now in a second disease phenotype. And we, we will insist that you've done it in both sexes. So I, I suspect it is doing some of that work and facilitating that work so that we get, I was thinking about this translational failure. And I wondered if, if really what it is, is a, is a contextual failure. We're, we're failing to get the context of something right. And if we get the context right, the translation will happen. So I think it's some of that stuff. I would love to hear what, if you think that would work or not. Look, I think a lot of it comes back. And I, when you say context, I assume you're referring to, you know, this concept of heterogeneity and the different yes. subgroups that we need, we need to apply this in. So you, I know you have a pet like for studying animals that have other illnesses and are older. Yeah. What are your thoughts there? Because again, the young, young men are probably not the best model. Yep. Um, and and again, contextually, they're probably a pretty good model if your population cohort you want to treat is post-traumatic osteoarthritis because they're the at-risk group. Um, so that, that would make sense for them. 
So, yes, I have a passion for, I think we have to do older animals. I think we have to do both sexes. And I think we have to include some comorbidities. Uh, and those are the types of things we're talking about is, is having some obesity, potentially having diabetes, potentially having some early renal disease. I mean, all of these are the ultimately the, the older comorbid patient population that we see in, not we, that was terrible of me, that you see in your daily practice. That's the biggest growing population in Australian health context is people with multimorbidity. And I think the numbers are something like 80 plus percent of people have at least one other condition when they come to see you. And, and, and that's, we don't do that. Now, it's really hard. I mean, I, would you insist that that has to happen with everything? I, I think a lot of life is about and research is about stepwise things. So do I think that you might do a high throughput type study, which is or the ones that we know, so that could you, could you start screening your compounds and say, here's the best looking ones in the current model that we all do and we all do well in young male mice and then say, all right, here's the top 10% of those. We're thinking of moving them forward. Now, if you're going to move those forward, now you do, you add on. You make sure you do it in both sexes. You make sure you do it in some older animals. I suspect that's the model that, that would work. Again, the downside, it slows everything down. Um, every one of those studies might be another year or two years added on to that pipeline and complexities in life. So if you're a company and you have a patent, it has a lifespan on it. And if I spend half of that lifespan doing preclinical research, it won't be worth it for you as a company to move it forward. So life is complex. It's not just the pure academic aspects of this we have to consider. Yeah, no, really, really important points. And we'll include some links to some recent papers that Chris has co-authored for those people that want to dig into this uh, a little bit further. But Chris, any closing comments about that topic before I get into some closing questions? No, I, no. I, as, you, as you can tell, I could talk about this for days on end and have for cert, to certain people. Um, but no, I do think it. And I think having these conversations, ensuring that we, you know, one of the things that, that you, I know you're passionate about as well is ensuring that the different arms of, of the research community talk to each other. If we continue in our silos doing our things, as biologists, we'll explore biology for 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, just because it's fascinating. And unless we're doing that in a way that is going to have meaning and relevance to health outcomes, then that's not good. And making sure that clinicians are aware of science and, and making clinical decisions based on good science. And I know you're passionate about that as well. So yeah, no, and, I, and I'm I'm privileged too because I, you know, I get to share some conversations with you, and hopefully those conversations are, are bi-directional in the insights that get provided, yeah. so that you know you provide me insights, and hopefully from time to time, less frequently, <laughs> uh, you get some insights from me. But anyway, Chris, why why do you do what you do? What's your primary motivation? Oh, I, you can hear it in what I do. It's, it would be great if I said I, my primary motivation is to get up and help people each day. And my primary motivation is, is in biology and discovery because and, that's what I love to do. That's why I do what I do. And, but I think, therefore, 
that conversation we had just a minute ago about directing that and ensuring that it's being done in a good way makes the best use of my enthusiasm to to explore biology. So so that's honestly why I do it. I just love. I'm a my the people in my team will tell you that they hate me because if I see them working on their computer and I go, "Oh, what are you working on? Is that new data? Please show me." Yeah, his his in, his enthusiasm is infectious, and the sad the sad part about it, a podcast is it's all audio, so you don't get to see the looks on his face and the hand waving and the enthusiasm that's kind of nonverbal. But he loves he definitely loves what he does. And in closing, and obviously this last question usually is targeted toward people that have osteoarthritis, but and you may well want to give advice, knowledge, or wisdom to people that have osteoarthritis, but it may be to their companion animals or or animals that have osteoarthritis. Any advice, knowledge, wisdom that you'd like to impart? You can tell from the space that I come from, but I, my one bit would be trust in science and good data as a patient, veterinary or human patient. You know, don't fall for the, the quick fix, rapid cure. I honestly believe science will get you there. You know, if we look at COVID, we got out of COVID because of some really remarkable science and novel science and, and trusting in it. And I, so if good science is the answer to COVID, good science will, we're not there yet, but it will be the answer to osteoarthritis. And that's clinical science, basic science and discovery. So the trust in that process, we're, we're not trying to be slow and not trying to avoid these other things, but we need good data and good science. Yeah, and that's, that's a really good positive way to close. And I think hopefully also helps to cement that meld between the discovery and the clinical research, because I think the, the the sharing of insights, knowledge, and the translation into that space will be dependent upon good communication, good relationships. Chris, thank you so much for spending some time with us, those important insights, for being passionate about what you do, and really looking forward to having further conversations over the water cooler in the not too distant future. Absolutely. Pleasure to be here as always, David. Nice to see you again. So as Chris alluded to, there's been remarkable success in animal models of osteoarthritis in essentially stopping and sometimes reversing the structural changes of osteoarthritis and, and definitely alleviating symptoms in those animals. But unfortunately, at this point in time, a number of those really important insights haven't necessarily translated into human clinical trials. And there's lots of reasons for that, but you know, if I were to summarize probably the most important one, it really relates to the, this concept of heterogeneity. So that everybody who has osteoarthritis is a little bit different and the mechanisms by which they develop the disease are often quite distinct. And we at present in many of the human clinical trials treat everybody the same irrespective of how they got osteoarthritis, irrespective of the type of pain that they have related to their osteoarthritis, and expect success, despite the fact that oftentimes those preclinical models found success in only a certain subgroup of animals. We've seen serendipitously some success in certain trials, which again, could have potentially been predicted based upon the preclinical, the animal model research. We need to learn from that to have more informed conversations about what we've found successful in those animal models and the group or subgroup of people that we may find success in the human disease and not just continue to rely upon serendipity and rather rely upon knowledge and insights that hopefully would 
facilitate and foster better translation. It's an exciting space, it's an active space, but it's a space that we need to continue having these engaging conversations and make sure that we cross the bridge or divide between the preclinical world and the clinical world. So again, hoping you found this of interest, at least I enjoyed it, and it looks based upon Chris's face as I enjoyed the conversation as well. Thank you again so much for your support, for listening to the podcast, and between now and when we next speak, please do take good care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.